This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is God's word. Now, originally I was going to preach on the second half of John chapter 8, but I wanted to take a, a step back and I should go back to John chapter 6. I debated working on this passage um, and actually decided not to go into this text, but um, I thought it would be appropriate for us to take a look at this uh, middle portion of John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, which is why we're looking at it today. If you want to uh, just kind of get a context of John chapter 6, first, the gospel according to John is really an interpretation. This is John who had known Jesus very, very well. This is Some would say he was Jesus' best friend. Your best friend is somebody who knows you incredibly well, knows all all the things about you, can explain you to anybody who would be confused about who you are. And that's why John wrote this gospel. And he intended it for people who have no even context about his particular context, which is people like us. Uh, John was actually reaching out to a very particular group of people outside of his own religious context. And so, you know, the first 15 verses or so, John, which is the miracle of the 5,000, feeding the 5,000 with the bread. Um, But we said earlier on that John never leaves these miracles alone. There's a much greater emphasis on the teaching of this miracle. And so the teaching of this miracle, we see this verses 25 to the end of the chapter, is John's teaching on being the bread of life. But sandwiched in between the miracle... And this teaching is this storm that takes place. Now, if you look at the progression, the first 15 verses, the miracle itself, is is us being able to see the power of God, is us being able to to know the power of God. That's Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the power of God used to fill people, to satisfy us, in the deepest ways that we need to be satisfied. The latter part is about us learning about and understanding, being clearer about what it means when Jesus is our satisfaction. But to see it on one hand, to learn about it on the other hand, those things will not make a whole lot of effect in our lives unless we experience it. And that's really what this passage is about. On one hand, you have this objective truth, objective reality. We see the miracle and we hear the lessons. That's objective truth. But the objective reality means very little unless there is a subjective, unless it impacts the subjective reality, our view, our worldview, our interpretation of the world, ourselves, even our interpretation of God himself. And that's what we're seeing here. You see, Jesus had asked in chapter 6, for the disciples to feed the 5,000. Everybody was hungry. And the disciples who were very, very skilled, they questioned, they almost looked at Jesus indignantly, and they said, how are we going to be able to do this? And their hearts were hardened because Jesus uses his little boy and his small lunch to feed everybody. 
And you know, the disciples, they're saying, but we're capable, we're skilled, we're discipled by you, and we're embarrassed. And they feel empty. So what does Jesus do? He sends them out into a storm. And this passage is going to teach us then how do we look at our suffering? How do we look at our storms? Christianity is all about processing life through this objective reality of Jesus Christ and responding to that in all aspects of our lives, including our storms. It doesn't, it doesn't make us ignore or neglect the suffering in our lives. It actually forces us, causes it, gives us hope and an anchor to look at our storms. So there's three lessons today. The identity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. The identity the power and the wisdom. And that, when you take in the identity of Jesus, when you take in the power of Jesus, when you take in the wisdom of Jesus, then you will have an experience of Jesus that is rooted in this objective reality to help you to weather the storms of your lives. First, the identity of Jesus. This passage teaches us about who Jesus really is. Verses 16 to 19, we have these disciples. They had just experienced or seen the feeding of the 5,000, their hearts were hardened. Gospel uh, Matthew says that their hearts were hardened by this. And uh, Jesus sends them out to fish. And it's dark. And they go out three and a half miles, which means the waters are deep. And all of a sudden, the storm comes. The waves get high. The waters grow rough. And the storm comes. And these men, a lot of them are fishermen. So that means they understand the waters. They're skilled people. They have, they're strong but they see the wind, they see the waves, and it's terrifying. But the text says something very interesting here. The text says they were not terrified until verse 19. It doesn't say, oh my gosh, the, the waves, the storm, the waters. It's not what they say. It says the waters grew rough, but they weren't terrified until verse 19 when they see Jesus walking on the water. There they knew. Now, these men, they've been in storms before. There they knew. They understand the high seas. They understand the high waves. But Jesus walking on water, this is not normal. Here's Jesus. He's approaching them in the midst of all the chaos and the, and the, and the raging sea. But what's supernatural, all that is normal. Storms, as rough as they are, it's normal. That's natural. But Jesus walking on water towards them, approaching them, it's otherworldly. This is supernatural. This is transcendent. This is completely set apart, and therefore they're terrified. Another word for being set apart is what? Holy. To be holy is to be set apart. And Jesus, as he's approaching them, verse 20, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, the Greek phrase, it's a remarkable phrase when he says, it is I. That phrase, when you translate that into Hebrew, is I am. I am. Don't be afraid. Now, that's absolutely remarkable because that phrase in the Old Testament is the same phrase when Moses, when he encounters God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God says, Moses, I want you to take off your sandals for the place that you are standing on is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses asks, well, if you're going to send me back to Egypt to tell your people, to tell the Pharaoh, to let my people go so that they may worship me, because the ultimate end of all this, of the rescue and of the slavery is worship. He says, when they ask me, who, does, who is it that sent you? What am I supposed to tell them? 
How am I supposed to respond? And God says, you tell them that I am sent you. And what that means is, there never was a time when I was. There never was a time, there never will be a time when I will be. I am unchangeable, I am unshakable. I'm totally sufficient in myself. I'm totally complete in myself, which means I'm never insecure. There will never be a time when I feel incomplete. There will never be a time when I lack anything. There will never be a time when I will not be enough for you. I am all sufficient for you. I'm all complete for you. I am everything that you need. I am all that you need. In me, you can be complete. As God, I'm set apart. That's what makes me unique. Anything else that proposes to be God is not complete, is insufficient. What makes me unique, what makes me set apart, what makes me holy is that I am all sufficient. What's Moses' response? He sees the fire in the bush. He hears God's voice. And, and he immediately takes in. He's taking in this holiness of God, this set-apartness of God, this incredible, bright, brilliant uniqueness of God, and he hides his face, it says in Exodus chapter 3. Here are the disciples. They see Jesus in the midst of the chaos approaching them, walking on water, supernatural. And what they realize is, never mind the storm, never mind the waves, Now they're terrified. You know why? Because now they're beginning to see the real terror in the storm. The real terror in the storm is the power of God. Walking on water, what that means is this. You can say a lot about Jesus. Some people say Jesus is a moral teacher. Some people say he's a religious leader. Some people just say he was a good, good man. But if you think about it, a moral teacher, if you're a moral teacher, If you're just a religious leader, that would never terrify you. If Jesus was just a teacher, if Jesus is just a leader, if Jesus is just a good person, that should never terrify you. Why? Because if Jesus was just a good rabbi, and the disciples, they called him rabbi. If he was just, and up until this point, he was just a rabbi to them, a good rabbi. If Jesus is just a teacher, following him, listening to him is a choice. If Jesus is just a religious leader, following him is a choice. It would never terrify you. But if Jesus is God, he says, I am. If he is God, it's dawning very quickly on the disciples. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of storm, in the midst of the highways, in the midst of pending death, the real terror is coming face to face with a holy God, a powerful, all-powerful holy God. And yet, what does he do? Forget about the storm. Forget about the waves. Never mind all those things. The real terror is coming to them. And yet, when he approaches them, what does he say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And they immediately take him in. He says, I am. Take me in. You better get me. Moses took him in and said, oh, I'm going to hide my face. He says, I am the real terror in your life if you don't take me in. Take me in. And they immediately take him in. Verse 21, they take him in, and they're taken into the shore. Rudolf Otto, he's a German philosopher, 1917, wrote a seminal piece of work, seminal piece of German philosophical literature. And German philosophical literature at that time in the early 1900s was impactful in the world to a huge degree. He wrote this book called The Idea of the Holy. 
This is virtually a secular man talking about the concept of holiness. And uh, there he explains what that means. And what he basically says is, in many ways, the way you look at a fire, when you look at a fire, a fire has two components to it. On one hand, it's brilliance and it's, it's attractiveness. On the other hand, it's avoidance. Attractiveness and avoidance. On one hand, a fire is incredibly beautiful. So when you're in the dark, when you're in the unknown, you want to be near light. You're attracted to that. You want to be close to it. You want to get as close as possible. Why? Because when you're in the dark, it's cold. You want to be warm. When you're in the darkness, you can't see. You want clarity, so you need light. But when you get, as you get closer to the fire, what does it do? Number one, it starts to expose everything about you. And the more and more you get exposed, you start to burn. If you get too close, you burn. And so Rudolf Otto says, we experience that all the time in our lives. When you see a beautiful person in your life, there's a sense of attraction and a sense of insecurity that it brings to you. If you're attracted to that person, you automatically sense this need and this desire to actually make yourself beautiful, to kind of come equal with that person. Because if you're not, you will want to hide your face you will want to run away. It is, it is built in us to be attracted to the holy. And because of our brokenness, he explains, it is equally built in us to actually avoid the holy in our lives. On one hand, we're built to relate to God. On the other hand, we're created with this freedom and this rationale. And we decided to live for ourselves. We decided to seek a sense of worth that is apart from God. And so what happens is, even though God is the creator and we're attracted to God, we actually avoid God. Coming near to God actually brings a sense of shame because at one point in our lives we said, but I'm the creator. I'm the one that owns the world. God had placed Adam, man, in charge of the world. And he says, I'm the king until you come face to face with the real king, you see? And, and that makes you feel less kingly. You want to run from God. And what did Adam do? The moment Adam sinned, what did he do? He hid. He hid from God. And in the same way that God actually pursued Adam, Adam, where are you, he says. We have Jesus out in the storm pursuing these disciples. The disciples, they want to get close to Jesus. They were attracted to Jesus. They follow Jesus. The very word discipleship is to follow so closely. They were called the people of the dust because as the disciple would walk, his, the dust would kick up from his feet. And get on his disciples. So the more dust you had on you, you were a closer disciple to your discipler. And yet, when he came near and they saw him as he truly is, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, they were terrified because they finally saw who they were up against. Their hearts were hard. They were embarrassed. They were disappointed. And in their disappointment, in their hardness, Jesus sends them out in the storm and they come face to face with the real and living God. And it's what softens them. There is this terror of realizing who he really is. How does this play out in our lives? Think back to the first time, the very first time that you've ever come to church, maybe to Metro. Most people here are one of three types. Uh, some people fear before walking in how will I be received? Some people fear being disappointed. You know, I grew up in the church. I left the church because the church had damaged me. And so they actually fear being disappointed again. And then there are people who fear, well, if I get connected, if I get hooked into this church, 
what do I have to give up? So either you fear not being received, or you're going to fear being disappointed, or you're going to fear what you have to give up. Why do you have those fears? In each and every one of these cases, it's a demonstration or dimension of us wanting control over our lives. And so you want to control the risks involved. You want to control the damage you might experience. But at the same time, you're attracted. You want to come near God. And you know that in order to come near God, you have to come to church. So on one hand, you're attracted to the brilliance of God. And on the other hand, but what do I have to give up? What if I get hurt? What if I'm disappointed? What if, what if coming close to God means that I have to change, you see? In each and every one of these cases, we want control of our lives. And that was Adam. That's the, that's the human condition is that we so much want control of our lives, we ousted the one person who actually does have control of our lives. The disciples came to realize in this moment that the person that they need in the boat the only person that could actually lead them in safety because clearly they knew they're fishermen, they're in rough seas, they're in the deep, three and a half miles out, they're in the deep. The one person that they need in the boat has to be powerful, has to be mighty, but they realize now, he says, it is I, that person's powerful. I am, I'm powerful. I am, I'm mighty, but don't be afraid. Automatically, there is a call. Demands our trust demands our purity, demands our maturity, demands our growth. And at the same time, that person must really love me because he's willing to sacrifice his life in the storm to come out to rescue me. Because what is true love? True love gets in the way. True love intervenes. True love gets wet. True love gets dirty. True love gets angry. True love Absolutely, true love gets angry. Any, any, if you're a parent, you understand. If you have anybody in your life that you love, you would understand. That if you see somebody that you love and that person is damaging himself and damaging other people, what, how do you feel? You get angry. You get angry. And it's not because you dislike the person. It's actually not because you don't love the person. It's actually because you love that person. True love speaks. True love beckons. True love challenges. True love demands. Here's Jesus. On one hand, he says, I am all-powerful. I am. And then he says, don't be afraid. Trust. Trust me. If you're in a storm right now, if you're in a cloud of confusion, if you're in a cloud of suffering, if you're in a cloud of brokenness, will you remember Jesus' own words to you? On one hand, he says, will you trust my power? Will you trust my power? On the other hand, he says, will you trust my gentleness? Don't be afraid. Will you trust that? That is the identity of Christ, all-powerful and trustworthy. Now, the second point is that, that actual power. Let's talk about that power. The power of Christ. Verse 17, the disciples, they get into the boat, and it's dark. And then in verse 18, immediately, three and a half miles out, three to three and a half miles out, you see these strong winds, the waters grew rough, there's a storm. What's the purpose of a storm in our lives? Storms show us our powerlessness. That's the condition, powerless. Storms take away 
The real storms in our lives take away any false sense of security by testing how strong your senses of security really are. The things that you're really relying on for security. Storms come in and wipe those things out. Storms come in and test those things. Storms test how much control you really have. And if you think about it, you have no control. That's how you know you're in a storm. Look at these disciples. No matter how skilled they are, no matter how strong they are, the nature of the storm, the very nature of a storm is what? Is to take away, is to negate how strong you are, is to negate how skilled you are, is to negate how beautiful you are. Storms show us your need. Storms show us how alone we really are, how scary and uncertain and uncontrollable and unpredictable life really is because that's the point. At that point, if you think about it, your skills do not matter. Your knowledge does not matter. Your salary cannot solve most of the major problems in your life. But the thing is, we pursue salary because salary is a sense of security in our lives. Think about it. But the real things that will be storms in our lives cannot be handled, cannot be addressed by any salary. You think your children are going to be a security in your life because if I could just raise good children, if I could have a family, that is all I need. But if you think about it, your children will not, they'll be the cause of many storms in your lives. They will trigger many storms in your lives. They will not be, they will not be the source of security in your life. But if I find somebody who just really loves me for who I am, that's all I need. But if you think about it, the moment that that relationship is threatened, and it will get threatened, the moment that that relationship breaks, you realize you have no security in life. Your skills and your knowledge and your possessions, these things have no effect. All that matters, storms are here to show us that all that matters is do we have a relationship with Jesus? How do we know this? Here's Jesus. He's walking on the water. This part is very important. Jesus walked, the very nature of Jesus walking on water is, is actually incredibly prolific throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because water by nature, the deep seas by nature throughout the history of the Bible is, represents the uncontrollable, the chaotic, the mysterious, the uncertainties of life. From the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the first paragraph, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. These waters that are mysterious and present, these waters that are uncontrollable and chaotic, and yet God is over it. God is over it, and it's complete control. That's what we see right from the beginning. If you, you see... The theme of that all the way through in the Old Testament, later on, you see what Moses does to the Nile River, right? The Nile represented life for these Egyptians. What does he do? He brings blood into the water, right? Because he says, without the Lord, it's death. The things that you thought were life are death. First Kings chapter 18, amazing passage. Um, pretty, pretty popular if you've grown up in the church. Uh, you have uh, these prophets of Baal that are there, this, uh, this idol, and these prophets of Baal are contending against the prophet of God, who is Elijah. And Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up these two altars. And I want you to set up your altar. I'm going to set up my altar. You're going to cry out to your God, and I'm going to cry out to my God. And we'll see whose God comes down. That's basically the summary of that passage. And here are the prophets of Baal. They set up their altar, and they're crying out. There's tons of them. There are hundreds of them. And they're crying out, and they're begging, and they're pleading, and their God doesn't answer. 
And they're starting to cut themselves. They're trying to get God's attention, and God doesn't show any attention. Their God doesn't show any attention. So Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. I'm kind of paraphrasing. That's not exactly what he says. But, you know, he says it's my turn. And then basically what he does is he fills this, his trough. He, it says he fills it with water to the point where the water is actually leaking out of the altar. That's how much water there is. And then he prays, and if you know what happens, boom, water. The fire of God comes down and licks up, and he says he licks up all the water. Do you know why? Because Baal was the god of water. Baal was the god of fertility. Baal was the god of the seas. There are legends about this this god Baal that fights the great monster of the sea and wins. And here's God saying, my spirit is even over that. You have nothing on me. That's God. So this concept, this theme of water, the uncontrollable force, the enigmatic, the unpredictability of, sti- of, the, of these seas, that's what it represented. And, and uh, we see in Psalm chapter 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Water is uncontrollable. Chaos, deep, but God is always in control. Since the beginning, since Genesis chapter 1, and in John chapter 6, verse 19, you have Jesus over the waters, and he's walking. And so that's the terror. That's the implication of this, is that you see incredible power on one hand, and yet incredible poise. Now remember, this is a storm. This is a storm out at sea. This is a hurricane. And yet Jesus is unrattled. It's, the, it's like an, it's an irony, so to speak. The boat is flying everywhere. The waters are flying everywhere. Everything is flying around. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Completely unrattled. Tremendous poise. Why? Because tremendous power. If you have the power, you can have poise because there's, you have poise because of the power. You see that? And, and these guys are terrified. In the boat, the people are terrified, but here's Jesus. He's controlled and he says, take me in. I am God. Take me in. And no matter how stormy, no matter how turbulent, no matter how ugly life can be, no matter how broken things can be, I will bring beauty where there's brokenness. I will bring healing where there's hell. I will bring order. I will bring restoration. What power? What love? What compassion? He says, I am amazing power. I'm God. That's what he says, right? Do you trust that God has the amazing power to save and to rescue and to heal you? But you don't know how damaged I am. I don't know how damaged you are, but God does. But God knows. And, and so, if you remember the passage about the bread of life, he says, I'm all you need. I'm all sufficient. And now he says, in the storms of life, don't be afraid. I'm all you need. I'm all you need. I'm all sufficient. He could have said, now remember, the disciples, their hearts were hardened. They were angry at God. He could have said, I know just how a few hours ago how you felt about me. You were cursing me in your hearts. I know everything you thought about me. You think this is scary. Now I'm going to show you the real terror. That's not what he does. He tells them exactly what they need to hear. He gives them exactly what they need. He gives them rescue, and he gives them rescue with a word. He says, you can trust me. Don't be afraid. Look at the love of God. You know, the disciples, they weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't seeking Jesus. 
Is there any indication in this passage that they were repenting to Jesus? Is there any indication in this passage that they were searching for Jesus? They wanted to get away from Jesus. They were upset at Jesus. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus. And yet, Jesus pursues them, and Jesus calms them, and Jesus rescues them. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. That's the compassion of God. Sometimes Jesus may seem incredibly distant to us. There are days when you feel like God is really, really far. You can be walking with God, so to speak, and yet feel at times just not right. And, and God seems so distant. And it could be because you're in the midst of a storm or it could be because you know that you're heading into a storm. It could be because you've been, you see so many people in their storms and God just seems so distant, so far. And yet here are the disciples. As far as God seems, he's a lot closer than you think. So much closer than you think. And always sufficient and in control. And that's what softens them. That's what softens their hearts. There are days, and if you look at the books of Ruth and Esther, you don't see a lot in this book except suffering. Most of Esther and most of Ruth, chapter after chapter, is just a hard, hard time of poverty and oppression and fear and anxiety and pending death and pending loss and suffering from major losses and death of loved ones. That's really what those books are really about. And God isn't mentioned at all in an active way in either of those books. There's no place in the books of Ruth or Esther where it says, and God heard them, and God came down, and God lifted them out. You don't see that in the books of Esther or Ruth. God actually almost seems intentionally left out. Why are those books in the Bible? You know why? Because sometimes God seems so distant, kind of an afterthought, not even mentioned, and yet in the book you see God completely in control. Not even mentioned, and yet you see all the events leading up to the possibility and the certainty of redemption. That's what this passage is about. That's what those books are about. That's why they're in the Bible. What does that tell us? In the midst of the storm, you can't see God a lot of times. That's what storms do because you've been so fixated in other things as your anchor, you actually walked away from God probably a long time ago. And the thing is, when a storm comes, it upends and uproots all those things that you've been relying on. That's what a storm is. And you feel the pain and the loss and the suffering. And it isn't until much, much later, when you're, for a lot of people, when you're able to look back and you see, he was in control after all. He was in control after all. This is an amazing text because it teaches us that if you focus on your skills, if you focus on your strength alone, one day a larger storm, a storm that's large enough to overwhelm your strength and overwhelm your skills, it will come. There's a storm coming and it will overwhelm you. And what that means is you didn't really take him in. You gotta take him in. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his word. Take him in. How does it counsel us? What is the wisdom of God? That's our last point. Storms reveal several things. They reveal who Jesus is. We see his power. They reveal how powerless we are, who we really are. We thought we had control. We don't have control. We thought we had power. We're actually powerless. By the way, that's the reason why we crave money. That's the reason why we want to stay young. That's the reason we, why we want to crave. We crave being beautiful, and we crave and we seek after beautiful things. 
Because if you can have something that's beautiful in your life, you feel like you have a sense of worth. You feel like you have control. You feel like I'm worthy enough. If you have, if you're rising that corporate ladder and you're, you're increasing your salary, increasing your poten- potential, you're increasing your wealth potential for that matter, you feel like you have a sense of control in your life. This storm was very, very real to the disciples, but it can really be a, a metaphor for us because storms reveal what you really trust in, what you really rely on when you feel weak, what you really rely on when you're helpless, what you really turn to when you're, when you're weak. But think about it. In the gospel according to Mark, who actually talks about this same text, various disciples do, at least three of the four um, gospels do that, Mark notes that Jesus sent them into the storm. What that means is that Jesus actually puts you through it, puts you through your storms. Now, sometimes Jesus sends you into the wilderness, like the, like the 5,000 people who are on the mountainside. It's a wilderness. There's no food there. You can't sustain life there. Sometimes he sends you in there only so that he can provide for you, and everybody's filled, and there's all this food left over, and everybody is satisfied. And then he says, I am a satisfaction in your life. Yes, and you feel great about that and you feel filled in your life. Sometimes he does that. Other times, he sends you deliberately into danger, into the waters, into the deep, into the uncertainty, into the uncontrollable, into the chaos, where God's presence is faint and seems pretty much absent in your life. These disciples, they thought, yes, I'm, we're right here. We have skills. We've been trained. We have power. We just got back from performing all these miracles. They rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I want you to feed this 5,000 people. They said, how? How can we do that? I'm a miracle maker. I went out and I performed miracles my own, Jesus. How can we do this, though? This is impossible. But in this passage... This is the first narrative where they actually worship Jesus as God. If you actually look at the other gospel accounts, it says they took him in and they worshiped him. And they said, surely you are God. You are the son of God. Why does that happen? In Matthew it says they took him in, they worshiped him. Before they saw Jesus' power, they saw his potential. They saw his potential to be able to fill people's lives. Later on, he teaches about being able to fill their lives. He says, I am the bread of life. So they saw the potential. They see and hear his teaching. They had to experience it. You don't, you're not able to worship until you experience it. That's what it means to take him in. That objective reality of who Jesus is and who he says he is, and it's written, has to be taken in and experienced. For the first time in their time with Jesus, they were saved. They were rescued. They were brought out of the deep. And they saw it, and they saw, in that moment, they saw who he is face to face. The transcendent, brilliant, powerful God that he is. So they worshiped him. This is the first time that they experienced in themselves. They thought their skills were enough. They thought they had power. They thought they were intelligent. They realized that their intelligence has nothing to do with this. They thought that they realized their skills have nothing to do with this. They realized that they pow- their power, I re- realize now my power is nothing save for Jesus sending me. 
And so for the first time, this objective truth became subjective reality in their lives. And remember, Jesus doesn't come to them. He walks all the way out there and he says, don't be afraid because I checked online and it clears up. That's not what he says, right? The storm's going to end soon. He doesn't tell them the storm's going to end. And he says, guys, don't worry. In a few moments, this thing's going to calm down. That's not what he says. He says, I am. In the storm, I am. Storms reveal who you are. Storms reveal what you cling to for safety. Storms reveal who Jesus is. Psalm 59, you are my refuge in times of trouble. I am. He's saying, I want you to see who I am in the storm. You can't hear me. You can't find me. Sometimes you probably weren't even looking for me, but I want you to see who I am in the storm. That's why you're here. Plunge your fears. Plunge your weakness into the real God who truly saves, who's truly powerful, that terrifying holy presence of God who loves you and cares deeply for you and is willing to sacrifice his life for you. Now, some people say, you know, I don't see him. In any of my times of trouble, I read that psalm and I say, you are my refuge in times of trouble and I've never, had, I've never been able to see him in my times of trouble. And what you're really saying when you say that is that I'm so disappointed because I tried. Pastor, I tried, I prayed, I served my heart out and God never answered me. And if he's so powerful, then why didn't he answer me? Is it logical to say that if an all-powerful God exists, he must answer my prayers? And if he doesn't, then he must not exist. Is that even logical to you? Is that even intelligent to you? If God exists, you must at least submit to the possibility that he's all-powerful. Then you have to submit to the possibility that if he's all-powerful, he can be all-wise. Jesus is putting us through the storm so that we might lose other things in order that we might gain him. That's what storms reveal. He's tearing up these poor anchors that you're tethered to, these insufficient life rafts. You ever get on a raft that has a small hole and you try to calculate whether or not you can get from point A to point B without that raft sinking? And you say, I think I can make it. And you get in there and as you're on that raft, you start to sink and your feet start getting wet and you're like, I'm not going to make it. Jesus is saying, I'm sending storms into your life to show you that that is the case. Every one of us is clinging for life somewhere. We're trying to cling to life to something. The, these, another word for that is idolatry. In ancient times, people would, uh, people would uh, sacrifice, make sacrifices and pray to the gods of commerce or the god of fertility or the god of the harvest. And really what they do is they're working hard for these gods so that they could answer him answer them but because you know really the harvest or the or the fertility or or the uh, commerce that's their sense of worth so when you had spoiled crops or if you got sick or if you can't have children that, and that's a storm these are all storms in our lives these gods you worked hard but they've disappointed you so they must be angry at you so you have to do things to appease these gods today we don't have idols of gold or silver or stone that we kind of prop up and pray to and try to appease and make sacrifices to do but we still make idols out of our money we still make outer idols out of our security 
We still make idols out of beauty, and what we do is we serve them, and we work hard in the same way because we say, if I make enough money, then I will be happy. And so you work, and you're sacrificing your body, and you're sacrificing your happiness. And so we're in jobs that we really don't really care for, and we're in careers that really are punishing us and oppressing us, but we stay in these careers because what we're saying is, I got to do this, and I got to keep doing this because that's the way I can be healed. That's the way I can make it in life. We all cast out anchors because these anchors, number one, they make us feel like we're in control. If I have these things, then I feel in control. We cast out anchors because these anchors help us to feel in control, but storms remind us we were never in control. And they show us how inadequate these anchors really are that we're clinging to. And and not only how inadequate these anchors are, but how adequate he is. Paul says, you know, the Apostle Paul is a remarkable character. If you read any epistles in the New Testament, he's a remarkable, brilliant character. And in Philippians chapter 3, basically what he's saying in Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to paraphrase it again for you. He says, you want status? I have status. I had the highest status. I worked for it. I worked really hard to have a great education. In fact, he was, he was discipled by some brilliant philosophers that are known in history. So he says, I went to the equivalent of beyond. Harvard has nothing on me. Oxford has nothing on me. He is one of the most brilliant minds in world history, they say. He says, I had status. I had education. And when it comes to religious right, I was virtually flawless. I adhered to every law imaginable that was set up to prove my worth to God. And you know what I got out of it? I thought I'd be happy. I thought I'd be satisfied. And I wasn't. And I was angry, and I was bitter, so bitter that when the small group of people called Christians started rising up, it threatened my sense of right so bad because they were talking about grace, I wanted to kill them. And I even had some of them killed. And I got to live with that guilt on one hand, but I was still living with that anger and that bitterness. Philippians 3 is amazing because what he says is, you know what I learned? He says, friends, I learned that all of that that I spent my entire life investing in is rubbish. The actual word rubbish is actually transferred to be, translated to be actually be a much harsher word than that. He says, this is trash. And he says, what is more, I realize that there's nothing more important than than the knowledge of the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And in chapter four, towards the end of the book, he says, I've learned to be content. This angry, bitter man who had everything going for him says, now I've lost everything only to gain Christ and I'm content. I've learned contentment for the first time in my life. He says, those things used to be my anchors. I had everything, status and title and pedigree and education and it only made me bitter. It only made me comparing myself constantly to other people. I was still insecure and angry but then I took Jesus in And when I took Jesus in, he doesn't say, Philippians chapter 1, if you read Philippians chapter 1, he doesn't say, when I took Jesus in, all the storms in my life went away. Having Jesus in your life is not the absence of storms. It actually in some ways guarantees storms in your life. But he says, I found harbor in the storm. I have the presence of God and I am able to endure all things because I am now tethered to the only thing that will not sink me. That's what he's saying. Jesus knows that anything else you tether your life to is unstable. But when you're tethered to him, you are safe. 
build your life on Christ. Make him your God, your I am. And notice he handles storms very, very differently. Some, in some storms he says, be calm, peace. And just instantly the, the storm dies down. You'll have that in your life. You pray to him, you pray, you cling to him, and he will say, peace. But in this case, that's not what he does. And that's what I found remarkable in this passage. He doesn't come out and say, peace. But in the storm, as it's raging, he comes out to you. And he's there. And he's not like kind of out in the distance and saying, ooh, that's pretty bad. But I'm around. That's not what he says. He actually walks to you in the storm. He's got no cover. He's got no cover. At least you have a boat. He's got no cover. And he comes out to you. And he's trying to show you his power above it. Being a Christian doesn't mean the end of storms, but it does mean you have security. And in that security, you have poise. You have calm. You can trust. On one hand, it doesn't mean that when Jesus becomes all you need and you see how insufficient the other anchors in your life are, it means you become, on one hand, less neurotic, less anxious. You realize, oh, I've been trying to control things all my life, and then you just need to let that control go because I, I never had control in the first place. And so you become less reliant on these other tethers in your life. That makes you very, very teachable. It makes you very, very humble. But on the other hand, because you're suffering the storm, because you're still suffering, and you know that the suffering that you didn't cause this, well, in some cases we do, but at the end of the day, you can't control it. And you have Jesus Christ in your life. His presence is in your life. His courage becomes your courage. His peace becomes your peace. His power becomes your power. And as a result, you can say, you know what? I am in a storm. You, it will not make you saccharine. It will not make you fake. You don't, you're not going to run around saying, oh, yeah, I'm going through this thing, but it's all good. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, on one hand, I am suffering. I am suffering. You don't have to fake it. And on the other hand, the suffering is real. And Jesus knows it's real. He's in it. On the other hand, you know that he's present in the storms. And so it makes you teachable. It makes you humble. On one hand, you're going to be incredibly poised and calm and trusting. On the other hand, you're going to be more real because you're broken and you're humbled. And when you have the poise of Christ and the brokenness of Christ in your life, what's going to happen is it's going to make you more, uh, it's going to make you more courageous. It's going to make you more compassionate towards other people who are suffering. It's going to make you more wise. He's shaping you to become like him. That's his power. So in some storms, he says, peace. In other storms, you feel alone and he comes out to you. But no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, I can say this unequivocally to anybody who's in this room, no matter what, whether he says peace in some of your storms at the end or whether he's in there just riding the storm out with you, trying to teach you and shape you and mold you slowly and gently. It doesn't mean you need to figure it out right away. It doesn't mean you need to stop and be like, what is Jesus trying to show me? It just means just ride it out with him and be humbled and be teachable and be open and be trusting. But the main storm, the main storm in our lives he already suffered alone. On the cross, there was an earthquake. When Jesus was on the cross, there was an earthquake, which means that things were going deep. And that it was so deep that the, sh- the foundations of the temple were shaking and the holy temple curtain had torn in two. And then there was the darkness. The darkness came over the land. So you have the darkness and the deep and the raging and the rumbling on land. 
Jesus was enduring a storm on the cross and he didn't have peace. And he was completely overwhelmed. He lost complete control. In fact, he emptied himself of his power. People were screaming out and saying, if you are God, if you are the I am, end the storm. Because that's what gods do, right? If you're so powerful, why don't you end the storm? Come down. If you're truly God, if you're truly the I am, come down. And yet he remained silent. And why? Because he didn't come to end those small storms. He came to suffer the ultimate storm. You know, the nails he could handle. You don't see him saying, oh, the nails. The crown of thorns he could handle. As painful and suffering as it was, as much as he was, the bleeding he could handle. He was enduring it. He doesn't say, oh, the blood, the blood. He doesn't say that. The darkness and the deep and the earthquake. He doesn't sit down and say, whoa, this is scary. I'm terrified. That's not what he says. You never see him rattled. You never see him shaken up. Jesus had built his life around trusting his father God. He was tethered and anchored to his father. Never mind the earthquake, never mind the deep, never mind the darkness, never mind the raging storm. But when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is all these other things I can endure, but my life raft, my anchor is gone. And now I'm suffering the ultimate terror. Not the presence of God, but the absence of God. I'm suffering the ultimate terror. Jesus Christ said, I and the Father are one, which means on the cross when the Father left him, I'm torn apart. It wasn't so much that his body was being torn apart. He says, my soul, my heart, my center is torn apart. And I've lost the Father. I've lost the anchor. I have no power, no holiness, no righteousness. I am in the ultimate storm, the perfect storm, the ultimate terror, the perfect terror. And yet, do you know, he still says, my God, my God. When we suffer, we turn away from God. He still says, my God, my God. He was still worshiping God. Do you know he was reciting Psalm 22? The first line of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God. That means he was still memorizing scripture as he was hanging on the cross, being torn apart and departed from God. He was still trusting God. Even in God's silence, even in his, in his suffering, the ultimate silence, the ultimate suffering. He's suffering hell, complete separation from God on the cross. He's become sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, he's become sin and he will die. And yet even into his death, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He trusted that God, even in his suffering, even in his death, would do the ultimate good. And that's why he's reciting scripture to remind himself, to teach us that storms for you are not punishment. I know sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to shake that. We feel like we're being punished in our storms. Look to Jesus. He was perfect, and yet he was in a storm. He was perfect. Why? Because God would do the ultimate good through the storm, through the brokenness, through the weakness, through the death, so that you can look to him in your storms. And you can have clarity. This is not punishment. And you can have poise. 
and you can abandon all the other anchors in your life and you can tether to Christ and you can have safety and in him there's security and in him there's peace and in him there's satisfaction and in him there's, there's completeness and in him there's all sufficiency for you. There's an old children's song, I'm gonna close with this. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Smile at the storm, smile at the storm. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Sailing, sailing home. Sailing, sailing home. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Let's pray.